All right, well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Chapel. If you could go ahead and try to find a seat, we will get started. I'll give you a second to do that. Again, good morning. <laughs> good morning. Thank you guys for being here. I just want to say thank you to the youth band. You guys did an excellent job. That was beautiful. I love seeing another saxophone on stage. That's always exciting. And then the oboe. I have never seen an oboe in a worship setting before, and that was beautiful. I love that. And with the cello, love it. So thank you guys. Thank you, Matt, for directing it. And then also thank you, Michael and Sarah, for your work on the tech end of things. And yeah, so great music. All right, so as we're getting started, I want to open in prayer, and then I have some questions that I would like you to think about with me as we begin so would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that the youth band has led us so well in worship already, and thank you that we can continue to worship you now as we study your word together. I pray that you would motivate us towards greater faith, uh, both in what we believe and also in what we do. Um, thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so one of my favorite words is the word ponder. The youth, the youth group knows this because at the start of a lot of our lessons at youth group, I will ask them, ponder this, and then I'll give them some questions to just think about, right? Contemplate it. Don't shout out a response, but just think about it. And usually it has something to do with where we're headed in the lesson. This morning, we're going to start with that. I have some questions for you all to ponder, um, to think about. You don't need to shout out a response. In fact, I'd ask you not to. Um, just for this part of today, there will be some responses later. Um, but for right now, just think about it with me. Some of these questions, actually all four of these questions, are going to seem a little bit out of left field um, at the start, but there's a reason that I'm asking them. So trust me and ponder. When people die, do you think angels come and carry them away to heaven? Just think about it. Do you think that heaven and hell are close in proximity to you, but they're just separated by a big chasm, so you can't cross back and forth. But do you think they're possibly close enough that you can yell loud from one and you can be heard in the other and maybe even have a conversation back and forth? Think about it. Do you think you can see heaven from hell? Do you think you can see hell from heaven? From your faces, you're thinking, no, probably not. That would be weird. And I would agree with you. I think the answer to all of these, I don't know how you answered it in your head, but I think the answer to all of these is the same. And I would say, probably not. I don't think so. So then why am I asking them? Because they're really weird questions. Well, the reason I'm asking them is there is a passage from the Bible which has led some people, and I think incorrectly, but nonetheless, it has led some people to think that the answer to these four questions is actually yes that you can see heaven from hell and vice versa. You can talk back and forth. They're separated by a chasm. And that you're carried away by an angel when you pass away. And what passage is that? Does anybody know? This time I do want you to shout out an answer if you have one. I heard noises, but I can't make it out. What is it? <laughs> anybody? Yes. Okay, probably a lot of you said it. It's hard for me to hear you. The rich man and Lazarus. Yeah, and now maybe you know that because you know your Bible really well. 
and you know that story, and then you took the four questions I asked, and you, you pieced it together, and you said, oh, I think we have a match. Or, possibly, you read it on the bulletin on your way in. Because <laughs> the title is The Rich Man and Lazarus. However you figured it out, well done. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So Luke chapter 16 is where this story is found. And we'll put that on the screen. Or Sarah is working on that. Thank you, Sarah. So Luke chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 19. And uh, so read this with me. And as we're doing this, think about those four questions. You'll find them in here. 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, seems like they're talking back and forth. Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Confusing, fascinating, but confusing. So at face value, doesn't this appear to answer each of those questions in the affirmative? You, you're carried away by an angel. Lazarus was. They're talking back and forth. They're looking back and forth from heaven to hell. There's a chasm in, in between. They're close, but you just can't walk over because of this chasm. Um, and that seems weird because that seems to contradict what the rest of Scripture would teach us about heaven and hell. And that's where the confusion comes in for me. This doesn't find any match anywhere else in Scripture, and in fact, it's contradicted in multiple places elsewhere. So this is a problem. So what do we do? Well, some people have come up with an alternate explanation to this story. And they would, say, like, they would say, well, this isn't teaching us about heaven and hell. Because if you look closely, the words heaven and hell didn't show up at all, right? So the word Hades was there, and the word Abraham's side was there, whatever that means. But heaven and hell aren't in the passage at all. And so here's the way this alternate, and I think similarly confused, explanation would go. You have these two places, Hades and Paradise, and these are the waiting tanks or the holding tanks for the souls of people who have died, and they're waiting for resurrection. They're waiting for the time when Jesus comes back and everyone is resurrected, and they're waiting in Hades for resurrection unto death, and they're waiting in, ha in Paradise for resurrection into heaven. So that's an alternate way to look at it, but what are some problems with it? Can you think of any? The first one that jumps out at me 
as if these are just souls and these aren't resurrected bodies. These are just souls. What exactly was meant by the angels carrying Lazarus away? What part of him did they carry away? His soul? And what did they carry him to? Abraham's side, which was an ambiguous soul. What, what is meant by Abraham's side? Even more confusing, when the rich man talked about, I want Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and then cool my tongue. Okay, so Lazarus doesn't have a body. He's just a soul, and yet he has a finger. And the rich man doesn't have a body, but he has a tongue. We're just in the same place that we started. All, all of this is too confusing to make heads or tails of. And so at this point, we may be tempted to just throw up our hands and say, oh, the Bible is really confusing. Jesus, you got us. All right, let's pray. <laughs> and that would be terrible. And I think all of this confusion is unnecessary. And I think all of these questions that I'm asking are actually completely unnecessary, even though people do ask these questions about this passage. I think the confusion is completely unnecessary for one simple reason, and the simple reason is genre. So what genre is this story? What mode of communication is this story that we have just read? It's a parable. Yeah, this is a parable. And if we understand this as Jesus intended it, as a parable, all of the confusion goes away. And we'll get to that in a minute. But first, we have to talk about parables. So we like parables. I like parables. I think most of us like parables because they're simple and they're short and we can remember them. But we're also really confused by them sometimes. And I think the reason for that is we don't really have a category for them in modern 21st century America. Outside of the Bible, parables don't really exist. They're not really a thing anymore. Right? And so we don't really understand what to do with them. We understand different genres, like if we're reading a history book, we know what to do with it. We know the rules associated with reading a history book. Right? Probably it's describing events that actually took place. Um, if we're reading, if we're in the grocery store and we're walking out and you glance to the right or you glance to the left and you see the tabloids, you understand that you're going to read that differently from the way that you're going to read a history book. You're probably reading about things that did not actually happen or <laughs> sensational stories um, that really have no connection to reality. Um, if we're reading a love letter, we have a category for that. It's not talking about things that happened or things that didn't happen. It's talking about expressing someone's heart or expressing someone's feelings. So we have categories for those things, but we don't have a category for parables. Or do we? So read with me from Aesop's Fables. The lion and the mouse. A mouse skittered across a sleeping lion's nose. Before you could say twitching whisker, clump, the lion covered the mouse with his paw. You tickled my nose, you measly mouse. I think you will now tickle the inside of my tummy. Sounds ominous. The mouse peeked between the lion's claws. Your majesty, before you swallow me, consider this. If you will let me go, I will never forget it. And perhaps one day I shall return the favor and save your life. At this, the lion roared with laughter. It would be a shame to eat such a witty little creature. Run free, funny fellow. I will sleep well tonight, knowing that you are watching over me. The lion's loud laughter shook the ground beneath the mouse's feet as he scampered away. Later, the mouse heard a familiar roar, not of laughter, but a desperate roar for help. He ran to the lion, who was tangled in a net. And the mouse quickly chewed through the cords with his small, sharp teeth, freeing the lion. It's pretty funny, your majesty, chuckled the mouse, to think that a tiny mouse 
could save the king of the beasts. So this is a fable. What do we do with fables? We grew up with these, right? We have a category for this. How do you read fables? What are the rules connected with fables? Fiction. Did someone say fiction? Yeah, they didn't actually happen, right? So we don't read this and think, hmm, I wonder what this story about the mouse and the lion can teach us about how mice and lions communicate with one another. Hey, we'd be wrong to read it that way. We'd be misinterpreting the type of literature that it is. What else? So it's fiction. We know that it's made up stories that didn't actually happen, but what else? What's kind of the main thing about a fable? It has a moral. It has one main point at the end of the fable, and that's the thing that we're supposed to take and apply to our life. So there are two rules, really, for reading fables. One, don't be confused and think that mice and lions actually talk to each other like this. It's, it's a made-up story. It's fiction. And then two, there's a main point, usually at the end, and that's the thing that we are supposed to apply to our life. All right, let's read another one. Some of you guys are like, ah, oh, I thought fables. All right, Belling the Cat. You guys probably have heard this one. Maybe you didn't know a name, um, but let's, let's read it. Everyone knows that cats and mice are enemies, but what you may not know is that long ago, the mice gathered to discuss how to outsmart their crafty foe, the cat. One young mouse stood and addressed the crowd. I think we can all agree that Mr. Cat is a sneak. He creeps close on padded paws, and then he silently strikes. How many of our kind, rest their souls, have had their lights snuffed without the slightest inkling that danger was a whisker away? I propose, therefore, that we acquire a small bell and attach it to the wretched beast. Then whenever we hear tinkling, we know to lay low. The suggestion was met with wild applause and whistles and hoots of approval from the crowd of mice until one very old and well-respected mouse stood and raised his arm. Very well, he said, who among us will bell the cat? So you guys talked about how there's a moral. What's the moral from this particular fable? You can say it in your own words. It doesn't have to be exact. It's kind of the moral. Okay, yeah, put your money where your mouth is. It's easy to come up with a plan, but are you ready to carry it out? The way this particular book phrased the moral is it's easy to propose impossible remedies, right? And so that's the lesson. So every fable follows those two rules. It is fake. It's a made-up story. It's not describing something that literally happened. And it's also supposed to take our attention, capture our attention, create a teachable moment, and then deliver one truth one thing that we can connect to our life. Parables are the same. They operate with the same two rules. So we do actually have a category for them. We may not have known it, and sometimes when we have read the Bible, we may get confused because we forget that it's a parable or we didn't know the rules, but the rules are the same as for fables. Parables are stories that didn't really happen, right? They're made up stories that are used to create a teachable moment, to grab people's attention and then deliver one truth one main point that we can connect to our life. So now that we know what this is that we're dealing with, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, it's a parable, and now that we know those two rules for applying parables, how does this help to do away with all that confusion? Well, those are the wrong questions. You know those four questions I asked at the beginning? Those are actually the questions that a lot of people will study and talk about when they're reading that passage. I read commentaries, actually, dealing with what this teaches us about heaven and hell. And it's missing the point. It isn't teaching us about heaven and hell, it's teaching us one main point, 
which we'll talk about what is that main point, right? So to think what is this parable teaching us about the reality of heaven and the reality of hell, that would be like looking at the story that we just read about belling the cat and to think, well, what does this teach us about the history of the animosity between cats and mice? Well, it doesn't. It has nothing to say to that because that's a misreading. So let's take a look back at the end of the parable that we have just read, and let's try to find the main point. So I've suggested that there's one main point. Well, let's try to identify it. Let's figure out what it is. Let's see. Great. Okay, starting in verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So I would propose to you that the main point is pretty clear from this, and it goes something like this. Even if someone comes back from the dead, some people will still not be convinced. I think that's the main point. You could put it in your own words, but it's going to end up something like that. Someone could come back from the dead, but even if they did, some would still not be convinced. So if this is the main point, how do we apply it to our life? Well, I think the questions that we need to ask are, what do we do in response to this? Um, but also, be convinced of what? Right? So this is a little vague. So even if someone came back from the dead, some people would still not be convinced of, of what? What do people need to be convinced of? And I think there are three different answers for that, depending on which group you're asking about. So in, we could ask that question about the actual characters in the parable, right? And that's the, five, that's the five brothers, the rich man and the five brothers. We could say, what do they need to be convinced of? And we'll look at that. And then you could also ask this about the people who are listening to the parable. And who was that? Who's, who do you think? Jesus tells parables all the time, but this particular one, who's he talking to? You can look in verse, yeah. Yeah, he's talking to the Pharisees. So he's saying, here's a story, and he's telling the Pharisees a story, but usually when he's talking to the Pharisees, he's not just telling them a story, he's also telling them a story about themselves. So he's saying, this is about you, and you, sh you should listen. <laughs> okay, so we could ask this question, what do the Pharisees need to be convinced of? And lastly, we should look inward and say, what do we need to be convinced of? And that's where we'll conclude this morning. So first, what do the five brothers need to be convinced of? It appears to me that they're acting just the same as their late brother, right? Because he is concerned that they're headed for the same destiny. That's why he wants to send Lazarus back to cause them to repent. So they're, they're probably acting the same way as he's been acting. And what was that? How, how was he acting? Well, it tells us that he was feasting sumptuously every day while someone lay in anguish outside his gate starving. So what was the rich man doing and what were the five brothers doing? Neglecting the poor or neglecting the needy, disregarding those who needed help. Um, so what did the five brothers need to be convinced of? Well, they needed to be convinced of their duty to help the poor, or their duty to help those around them that had needs. 
This is what is meant by this phrase that says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Well, what do Moses and the prophets say about caring for the needy or caring for the poor? They say a lot. Moses and the prophets are full of passages about how we are blessed so that we can bless others, um, passages that talk about um, caring for the poor, um, not overlooking the needs of the oppressed, speaking up for those who don't have a voice. So to hear Moses and the prophets means do your duty, and your duty is to care for the poor. So that's what the five brothers needed to be convinced of. What about the people listening? So this would be the Pharisees. What about the Pharisees? What did they need to be convinced of? You could probably say the same, right? There are places in the Bible where it's clear that they were also overlooking the poor. And so you could say, well, this, they had to learn the same lesson. But I think Jesus had something else in mind, too, when he tells this story to the Pharisees. So what did they need to be convinced of? Well, what was it that they didn't believe? What's the main thing that the Pharisees didn't believe in the New Testament? They didn't believe Jesus, who he was. They didn't believe he was the person he said he was, and that was the Messiah. So what do they need to be convinced of? They need to be convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is the Messiah. Um, interestingly, they didn't believe that when he told the parable, and they continued to not believe that when Jesus died, came back from the dead, just like we see in the parable, and they still disbelieved. They still rejected him as the Messiah. So Jesus told this parable as a foreshadowing of his death and resurrection and their continued disbelief even after he came back from the dead. There's another story that we'll take a very quick look at that also, there's another guy named Lazarus. This is a real life character named Lazarus. Okay, so this is found in a narrative portion of scripture, not in a parable. Um, and there's a guy named Lazarus and you know this story, there was a guy that was raised from the dead. Lazarus dies, and Jesus goes and raises him back to life. Now, I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus chose for his parable, for his fictitious character, um, the same name of this actual real-life character, Lazarus. I think he's saying, look, this is, this is really close to home. All right, and so with the real-life Lazarus, after he came back from the dead, were they convinced? Were they convinced that Jesus was who he said he was? No, they actually tried to kill him again. Lazarus just came back from the dead and they set out to try to kill him again because as a result of him coming back to life, people were believing in Jesus. And they were so set against Jesus that they actually tried to put Lazarus back to death. Um, so the main lesson that the Pharisees needed to take away was the lesson that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was who he said. Now let's look at our own lives. What is it that we need to be convinced of? And I think it's actually the same two things. I think it's the same thing as the five brothers. We need to be convinced of our duty to look after the poor, convinced of our duty to care for those around us, care for the oppressed, care for the needy. I think we need to learn from that. Um, I know many of you well, and I'm inspired by the way you live in this regard. And so maybe for you, this isn't a call to repentance. This is a story that encourages us. Let's keep going. Keep doing what you're doing and encourages us towards greater faithfulness. Okay, so maybe that's the way that this story um, should challenge you as an encouragement. I think we can also learn the same lesson that the Pharisees needed to learn, right? So they rejected Jesus as Messiah. Well, I think sometimes we need to be convinced too that Jesus is the Messiah. And you might think, well, we know that. Of course we know that. And even think about last week. So last week was Easter Sunday. 
we're pretty convinced that Jesus came back from the dead, right? We celebrated that last week. And if you're here today, you probably have got that established in your mind that Jesus actually came back from the dead. So then the next question is, being convinced of that fact, what are you going to do about it? What further thing do you need to be convinced? Because I think believing that Jesus came back from the dead is the first step. And I think accepting him as Messiah and re re uh, recognizing him as the Messiah is the second step. So look at how confusing this can play out. There's some irony in this. All right, so sometimes we might think that we are doing pretty good. All right, so we might be listening to this parable and we might say, oh, I love this parable because it teaches us to care for the poor. I do that. I'm passionate about that. It's my life mission to care for the poor. Jesus cared for the poor. Moses wrote about it. The prophets wrote about it. That's great, because I do too. I'm following the Bible. I'm following the heart of God. I'm close to the heart of Jesus. I'm good with God. I don't need a Messiah. And that's how slippery it is, because sometimes we think we have got this figured out. I'm good with God because I'm doing the right things. I don't need a Messiah. And when we think that, when that's our attitude, we're making the exact same mistake that the Pharisees made. So maybe you haven't all slid down that slippery slope as far as I just described, but I have, and I'll tell you a personal story. A while back, I was preparing for a particular uh, youth event, and it was a retreat, so it involved overnight things, and it was going to be no sleep, um, a lot of work, and these are just getting harder and harder for me. Right? The older I get, the overnighters are more and more challenging. But I was thinking, you know what? I love these kids, and I love doing ministry, and I'm serving God. I'm doing great. I'm a good guy. Right? And so I was patting myself on the back and getting ready for this event. And it was starting in about 20 minutes. And so I went through my to-do list one last time to see if I had everything ready. Nope, I missed one thing. So I was, I'm 20 minutes from 5 o'clock, and I have to run to the store really quick. And so I run to my truck, I hop in my truck, and I get in, I, I start driving, but it's traffic, right? It's almost five o'clock, and we're in Clifton Park, and people, there's tons of cars around five o'clock. And also, when you have to get somewhere, everybody just drives so slow <laughs> and so bad, and I was getting so irritated. And then, finally, there was a clear straight in front of me, and I was like, this is great, I'm doing fine, I'm going to make it, and this person, there was no one behind me, this person pulls out right in front of me, cuts me off, and then goes 10 miles per hour under the speed limit. And I cursed them out. I was so mad. I yelled at them. They couldn't hear me. They're in another car. It did nothing. But I was like, oh. And as quick as that, my little Messiah complex was gone. I am not good enough. I haven't saved myself. My good deeds don't make me right with God. And the moment that I forget that, I think <laughs> something like this happens and I'm reminded. Um, and maybe you've had similar experiences. It's so easy for us to think that our good actions and our good deeds are what wins us favor in God's eyes, that that's actually what makes us right with him and that we don't need a Messiah. And that's the same mistake that the Pharisees made. I think it is a good reminder for us um, that we do have a Messiah um, on Good Friday, we, we remembered his death. On Easter Sunday, we celebrated his resurrection. We are convinced that he is our Messiah. 
um, that only he can save us, and we're grateful that he has shown his grace to us. And out of our gratitude, we do good works. The good works don't earn his grace or his favor, but out of our gratitude for his grace, we do good works, and we serve the poor, and we do all the other things that he calls us to do. For some of us, it's really hard to accept this idea um, that we need help um, or that we need someone to save us. Uh, that's humiliating. That's embarrassing. Um, I don't need someone to save me. Um, and it, we almost despise that thought that we would need a Savior or that we would need a Messiah. Um, we think that we can earn it on our own, and we'd almost rather earn it on our own rather than come to Christ uh, for our salvation. For those of us who struggle with this, let's conclude with one more word from Mr. Aesop. For those of us who think, I don't need help, and I even despise the thought that I would need help, and I'm good on my own. The stag and his reflection. In the cool of the evening, a stag came into a clearing in the woods where, he was, where there was a deep, sti still pool. Bending down, he caught sight of his own reflection in the water. How strong and beautiful my antlers are, he thought. But my legs, how thin and ugly they look. I'm embarrassed to be seen. As the stag looked away in shame, he heard hounds baying in the distance, and he knew that hunters were approaching. He bounded toward the woods, but as he ducked beneath the trees, his antlers became ensnared in some low branches. These cursed antlers have made me easy prey for the hunters and their dogs, he thought in despair. But after much kicking and struggling, his strong legs finally helped him to break free of his trap and quickly carried him to safety. Let us not despise the one thing that can save us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the story that we have been able to look at today. Thank you for the reminder that it is our duty to care for the poor. Um, I pray that we would do that joyfully and we would do that as a response to your love to us. Um, thank you also for the reminder that we do need a Savior, that we need a Messiah. Let us not fall into the same trap as the Pharisees of thinking that we are good enough or that we have earned your grace in some way. Um, I pray that we would be receptive to you as our Messiah. Um, thank you that you have loved us and that you have saved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you continue in worship with us as the youth band leads us?